0: What's up, queens? Welcome to the Female Dating Strategy Podcast, the meanest female-only podcast on the internet. I'm Rope.
1: And I'm Savannah. And today, we're going to be starting a new sort of ad hoc series. Because throughout history, we know about the Trumps, we know about the Hitlers, we know about the Stalins, we know about the Genghis Khans, the really, really nasty scrotes in history. So we wanted to start a series where we focused on perhaps the lesser known scrotes in the historical vault and put them up for analysis through an FDS lens. And yeah, so this series will essentially open the scrot vault to focus on perhaps the lesser known leaders of the world. Scroats throughout history. And to focus on the lesser known scrotes as well. And we want to look at them through an FDS lens and also to see Basically how men have historically dug their own graves to their own and sometimes their families demise. I bet there's just so much of that. So there is actually, there is, there is. So the first, I guess, leader on the FDS show trial is, comes from Russia and it was the last Tsar of Russia. So Tsar Nicholas II, who reigned from 1894 up until the second uh, Russian Revolution in 1917.
0: We talked about doing this episode before, and I know nothing about Russian history outside
1: of World War II. That's so weird to me, especially because Americans harp on about communism so much. Like You can't understand communism fully unless you know about czarism, which came directly before it.
0: I mean, we have a lot of political opinions that are not completely informed, right? I mean, it's just, (laughs) it's not required for us to know Russian history to know that we are not supposed to like communism. I mean, it's just more or less that I don't remember learning much about Russia at all in school outside of their involvement in the world wars. But, uh, so, but I'm guessing because you guys are European that it's more common to learn like a uh, history of other European countries where it's like, we had a lot of stuff going on in the 18th century on our side. So we pretty much whatever was going on in Europe is pretty glossed
1: over. Yeah. True. Kind of busy kicking out the British abolishing slavery, civil wars, some more slavery, Jim Crow. Mm,
0: abolishing slavery didn't come to like mid late 19th century,
1: but yeah, we had a lot of stuff going on. Genocide. So, to be fair though, when it comes to Russian history, it isn't actually entirely America's fault that they don't know much about it, especially about the Romanovs, because when communism came in and the Bolsheviks took over, they basically introduced like mass censorship of the Romanovs. So from around the 1920s up until 1991, when the Soviet Union was basically dissolved and then the Glasnost periods basically started it was basically forbidden to even mention the romanovs they just wanted them like basically forgotten about and it was only in 1991 under gorbachev when they opened the archives and actually started to learn about the family so they released pictures and letters so even russian people there were many of them who grew up you know not having any idea about the czars or about nicholas ii until that period because they just censored everything like once they got rid of them. And it's a bit weird for me because I, as you all know, I'm a Republican in the sense that I don't believe in monarchies. It's so funny when I say this on Twitter and I get Americans saying, oh my gosh, I thought you meant you're an American Republican. We need to like come up with a new name because I don't like being associated with the American Republicans. But I mean, I'm very anti-monarchy. I don't think it's a good thing, but I'm just really fascinated by royal families and especially the Romanovs as well, because I watched the film Anastasia, which is, a cartoon that was originally distributed by Fox but it's now part of Disney and that gives a very very sanitized view of the whole like romanov story some people especially like some of like anastasia's contemporary relatives who are still alive found the film quite offensive and i understand why because it was basically like happily ever after even though unfortunately anastasia who was the tsar's youngest daughter didn't survive the revolution But we'll get on to all that stuff throughout the episode. Okay. So we have, uh, Tsar Nicholas II. Um, and as I said, he was the last Tsar of Russia and he was the last Tsar of the Romanov dynasty. So the Romanovs ruled Russia from about 1613 up until about 1917. So about 300 years. It had a solid run. And it's interesting with the Romanovs in that initially when the dynasty started, they had a house law, so like a law of succession. So every royal house has laws of succession. And the Russian one was very unique in that the previous emperor or empress, they could choose their successor. So unlike other royal households where it's automatically the eldest child or usually the first son of the monarch and then the first son of that monarch goes down through the male line, in Russia, up until Tsar Paul I, they could choose a successor along comes paul the first who came several generations before the last Tsar, and he changes it so only the eldest son of the monarch could inherit the throne the only way a female dynast could inherit the throne was if all the eligible male dynasts had like died before her so let's say for example I was Empress of Russia and, well, I wouldn't even be able to be Empress because I'm female. But let's say I was Empress of Russia and I had an older son and then my second child was a daughter. And then my son died when he was younger. Instead of the throne passing to my daughter, it would then go to either the next, you know, nearest um, like um male relative. So whether that is, you know, my younger brother or perhaps my cousin who is male. And the only way my daughter could ascend the throne of Russia was if all the other ones, no matter how distant. So even if, like, you know, my 10th cousin once removed, he was male, was still alive, they would get the throne before my immediate daughter, if that makes sense. And this is a really important... Which is ridiculous. It's ridiculous, and it's really important because this plays a massive role in the reign of the last czar. Like, this little fact.
0: So I already vote him a scrote just based on this at all. I mean, it's just... (laughs)
1: Yeah. And it gets worse. It gets worse. But yeah, so keep that factoid in your head as we go through this story. So, up until Nicholas II, you know, Russian emperors had no issue with, you know, bearing healthy sons. So, Alexander II had many sons, who was his grandfather. You know, Nicholas's father, Alexander III, had several sons. And it wasn't an issue. And they also had healthy sons as well, bearing in mind this was in the 1800s where life expectancy was a bit dodgy. So not every child actually made it to adulthood, even in wealthy households. There would always be at least one or two kids who like basically died, you know, before they reached double digits. So yeah, Nicholas II, he comes along and he ends up having four daughters initially. So he had four daughters and it was around like this time that they were starting to panic because it hadn't been the case that you know four daughters had been born you know one after the other to the russian Tsar. it was usually a first daughter and then they'd have a son or this or they'd have a son first and then a daughter and so uh nicholas and the russian people are really really starting to panic this is where the misogyny starts creeping in from the russian people because they blamed his wife alexandra for having the four daughters when I guess DNA genetics, child—you know—the mechanics behind childbirth wasn't really known about. But it's ultimately the father that determines the sex of the baby. So if anyone wants to blame anybody for having four daughters, it would be Nicholas's fault because I'm pretty sure it's the dad who determines the sex of the child, not the mum. But they all blamed his wife, who was the tsarina at the time, because they didn't like her, basically. And again, keep hold of that fact too. So. In Russia, they had what was known as an autocracy. So in Britain, we have a constitutional monarchy. So day-to-day running of the country is actually left to the head of government. So whilst King Charles III is head of state, he's not head of government. And officially, I say officially, but not it doesn't really work out this neat, but officially, the a monarch and a constitutional monarchy, they have nothing to do with the running of the government. They're separate. And this is why, you know, Meghan Markle got a massive shock when she came here and realized that she can't be speaking about things as innocuous as perhaps, you know, the Me Too movement, because in a constitutional monarchy, the monarch is supposed to be at least visibly above politics.
0: That's really odd to me, because I feel as if if they're not involved in politics, like what are they there for?
1: Right. Well, the ceremony... And they are involved in politics, but it's through like a back doorway. Like they just can't publicly be involved. And that wasn't always the case. Like 115 years ago, the monarch was very, very involved in politics, a lot more than they are now. But I think it was around like 1910 with Edward the Seven that the monarch started to take a step back and just basically officially stick to the ceremonial roles. But they get involved like through the back door, if you see what I mean. However, in Russia, they had what was known as an autocracy. So in contrast to a constitutional monarchy, they, the Tsar was basically, he was also head of state and head of government as well, which meant that any law that was passed, he had to approve it. He basically ran the country through his ministers and he had a very, very active role in politics. Now, if you are a skilled politician, that can be a positive thing. But if you are not a skilled politician or you ascended the throne like Nicholas did, not having a clue how to speak to ministers, that's going to be a big, big problem. Because when Nicholas came to the throne, he was very, very young. So he was 26 and his father, Alexander the Third died suddenly. And a mistake that Alexander the Third made was he believed that Nicholas could basically just be a waste man in his youth. So I've basically read Nicholas's diaries because I'm a Romanov buff like that. And throughout his teenage years and, you know, young adulthood years, he wasn't serious about anything. Like he went to the opera, he had affairs, like he went to the army, he got drunk. You know, nothing in that diary would tell you that this guy is going to be, you know, czar of the biggest empire on earth one day. And his father refused to prepare him adequately because he believed that, oh, I've got another 30, 40 years on the throne. I'll figure it out later. Whoopsies. <laughs> then he dropped dead at 49, leaving Nicholas, who had no fucking clue about anything, to run the country. So that was mistake number one. Mistake number two, again, we go back to the line of succession, was that when he had, you know, four healthy daughters, he could have actually changed the line of succession. So he could have changed the house laws because as Tsar, you have the power to do that. It's just like, even in a constitutional monarchy, like King Charles III, he can change the line of succession, basically, in whatever way he sees fit. So if he wanted to, he would never do this. But he could say, Harry is now my successor, or, or like, Harry is now Prince of Wales. Obviously, that would you know never happen, but it could happen. And back in Russia, Nicholas had the opportunity to change the line of succession. And that actually
0: makes all the shade from Charles to Harry even worse, because you realize that he has the power to not do
1: it to like make things better. Yeah, of course, 100%. That is so ridiculous. 100%. Like they wield a lot of power, so if they're being shady, if they're excluding people, like this is very deliberate because they can do it differently. And so Nicholas had the opportunity to make one of his four like healthy daughters his successor, bearing in mind like if you think about I can't think of an equivalent. So a modern day equivalent of the Tsar's daughters would be like the Kardashians, but times a hundred in terms of their influence and in terms of their social standing, because they were deemed the most eligible women in the world because their dad was the Tsar. They were incredibly intelligent, incredibly bright, probably more than capable of becoming Empress of Russia one day, but they were sort of completely like basically swept aside in favor of You know, Nicholas's eventual successor, who was his only son, Alexei, who was a disabled child. And I mean that in the most serious, serious way, because Alexei had what was known as haemophilia. And so, haemophilia is basically a blood disorder. So, when you bleed, either internally or externally, your blood has proteins in it that makes it clot. So, basically, you don't bleed to death. But in a haemophiliac, those proteins are not present. So, you know, what can be like a minor bleed in a healthy person can be a fatal bleed in a haemophiliac and haemophilia came into the royal household and this is why i'm partly glad that they committed incest because they kept it to themselves it came in through a spontaneous mutation from queen victoria because she had nine kids and she married them out to spain to russia that was how the haemophilia basically spread around the royal houses of europe and the thing is with haemophilia is that it only manifests in males because it's a defect of the X chromosome. So in females, we have two Xs. So if one of them has a haemophilia gene, uh, women have another healthy gene, which is why it's very, very rare for a woman to actually have haemophilia. But they can be carriers and pass it down to their children so they can make their daughter a carrier or their son could have haemophilia. But with men, they only have one X chromosome. So if they have a, the haemophilia gene in their X chromosome, then they will have haemophilia. And it's thought that Queen Victoria got it from, because there was no prior history of haemophilia in European royalty before Queen Victoria, but it's suspected that it was a spontaneous mutation in Queen Victoria, possibly exacerbated by the fact that her dad was 52 when she was born. So she had a geriatric father which may have caused that mutation. So hemophilia in Russia was basically a devastating blow because ultimately the heir to the throne of Russia had this debilitating disease ultimately. And back then, hemophilia had no cure. So the life expectancy of a boy with hemophilia was maybe 20 if he was lucky. And there were several, you know, one of Queen Victoria's sons died quite young because of haemophilia, so he hit his head. And if he didn't have haemophilia, he would have survived. But because he had this bleeding disorder, he basically bled to death. The Tsarina, so the Tsar's wife, she had a younger brother who died of haemophilia when he was young. And so it was a very, very devastating disease. And you have to wonder the wisdom behind prioritising a son who was unlikely to live past the age of 20 and make him successor, invest all your hope in him as your successor, you know, versus four healthy daughters.
0: Yeah, this is why believing in men over your daughters is like punching yourself in the face, because ultimately, they're made to be expendable in a way that women are not like we're built to last, we're built sturdy. I mean, it's not unusual throughout history for this to be the case. I mean, just looking back at all of the like Egyptian pharaohs that were really sickly and died, same deal where there was a lot of inbreeding, et cetera, and it's like yeah they're not you know they're not built for tough like women are
1: yeah, so, and it was almost quite you know sad in their lifetime because the Czar's like four daughters they were called Olga, tatiana, Maria, and Anastasia, they sort of lost their whole identity to their brother because you know, their brother took precedence over them and they were sort of just essentially became background characters to their brother as a result, even though both the czar Tsar- and Zarina knew that Alexei's chances of actually living a full and fulfilled life or a healthy life were virtually impossible because from the minute he was born, he started having attacks of bleeding when it comes to haemophilia. And the thing is when a haemophiliac bleeds, especially if it's an internal bleeding, like in the joints, if the blood begins to get into the joints, it will destroy basically the joints around it. And, you know, now we have things like hip and knee replacements, but back then you have to remember that, you know, haemophilia, they didn't know, I mean, they knew what it was, but there was no cure for it. And so over time, Alexei basically became increasingly crippled over time because his bleeding attacks became more frequent, more intense, and they were literally destroying his body to the point where, if you watch any, you know, archive footage of the Romanovs, you'll always see that Alexei's hardly ever walking. He's being carried by a Cossack, and that was because he physically couldn't walk. You know, realizing, okay, yeah, maybe we need to sack off this requirement that. It's eldest son because eldest son is not going to be delivering. They decided to keep it there. And they basically, basically hid Alexei's diagnosis from the Russian people for about almost 10 years until he almost died of a haemophilia attack in Poland in 1912. Like he literally almost died. Like he had a horrific attack of bleeding. They had published basically his death notice. And then he made an unexplainable recovery thanks to Rasputin. But even that still wasn't enough for Nicholas to think, actually, maybe I need to rethink this whole succession thing and maybe give it to one of my daughters. That was just, that was unthinkable to Nicholas at the time. So that was the personal side of things. In terms of like Nicholas as a ruler, We touched on it briefly, but he ascended the throne very, very ignorant of how to actually run a country because partly to do with his upbringing, like, uh, royal, you know, people, you know, future kings and czars at the time, they were given a very, very academic education. So Nicholas was very brilliant academically. He spoke multiple languages. He studied history. He seemed to be quite an intelligent person, but that doesn't necessarily translate into having the, political now to run a country, especially a country like Russia, where at the time it was literally bordering on the brink of revolution. And what they needed was a leader who was tuned into the people to be able to pull them back from that, especially seeing as Nicholas's grandfather in 1882, Alexander II, was literally blown to bits by revolutionaries. They threw a bomb in his carriage, literally blew him to bits. So that was the sort of environment that Nicholas was walking into. And his father, Alexander Third, he was able to basically crush the revolutionaries like Sauron, just crush them, get them in line, because he had that temperament and he sort of had that reactionary approach, whereas Nicholas didn't really have that. He led a very, very sheltered life until he came to the throne and had to actually lead. So this is where we see a series of bad decisions being made. Now, personally, I think that Nicholas genuinely cared about Russia as a country. He just had no idea how to navigate a country that was on the brink of a revolution and a big revolution. He just had no idea how to navigate that successfully. So I guess the first strike was on coronation day. This was his first bad omen, so to speak. So again, they had a grand coronation in 1896. And as part of the celebrations, they had, they were giving out free food and beer in a field in Moscow, in the center of Moscow. And obviously Russian peasants, like or anybody, you'll be like free food and beer. But the event was so badly managed that somebody shouted that they were giving out the food earlier than was planned. There was a massive, massive stampede and crush. About 12,000 people died. Many, many more were seriously injured
0: oh damn so like
1: it was literally like a stampede over food yeah it was literally yeah and it was really really sad because it happened on his coronation day because they also had a ball that was hosted for them like a party hosted for them by the french ambassador so when they got the reports in basically like nicholas was you know badly advised to still attend the ball and that just made him look very very cold and uncaring especially after hearing that 12,000 people and many many more people had just been you know crushed to death you couldn't even just be like yeah i'm not going i don't think it'd be right to go because obviously this is an awful event and they went anyway so that was really strike number 1 strike number 2 again was the issue of succession so again like i've said they had four daughters between 1895 and 1901 (laughs) and it was borderline like fanatical the lengths they were going to to have a son they were consulting quack doctors they were bathing in holy water rivers they were you know canonizing certain saints because they believed if we canonize a saint they'll give us a son like they went to great lengths to actually give birth to a boy Again, you have to keep in mind that Nicholas could have changed this all, like none of this thing to happen. He could have been like, okay, I've got four healthy daughters, a son's not coming through, let's just change the line of succession. And this is something that men do, and this is what something that dynasts do, especially in royal households, is that they bow to religion and tradition, as opposed to what is actually practical and necessary to keep the monarchy going
0: but it's only tradition because there's just a long line of men being scroats and not giving women opportunity. You know what I mean? It's not like they convince themselves it's ordained by God a certain way, but it's really just them trying to hold on to power because they know they can impart certain
1: values. Yeah, to male power as well. So then they eventually have a son, Alexei, as again, he's very sick. Then the next huge fuck up is the war in Japan. So in 1905, Nicholas declared war in Japan. Long story short, Russia ended up badly humiliated because basically Nicholas went into the war thinking that the Japanese were inferior, had a very, very racist attitude towards Asian people. Would you say he fucked around and found out? Yeah, basically. <laughs> basically, yeah. And they were badly, badly humiliated and defeated by the Japanese. So that was then strike, stroke strike number two. Scroach strike number three, and this should have been the biggest warning, is that there was actually a mini revolution in 1905. And this was started by peasants. They marched to the Winter Palace, which is the main residence of the Russian monarch, but the Russian monarch doesn't always live there. So the Winter Palace was like the Buckingham Palace of the UK in that it's the official residence, but the monarch isn't always there, if that makes sense. They're often at a different palace that they prefer more. So the peasants, they did a peaceful demonstration and they wanted to ask the Tsar for concessions. So they wanted things like being able to vote. They wanted, you know, more say in how the country was run. And whilst the Tsar wasn't there at the time, he wasn't in the Winter Palace, somebody in the military gave the order to start shooting into the crowd. So they ended up, you know, bloody Sunday.
0: Well, damn. I can't even, as an American, claim moral superiority because that pretty much happens here. Like, People try to peacefully protest over their rights and then the cops just show up and start
1: shooting. That's basically what happened. And as well as like, it's important to remember this was a watershed in Russian history in terms of the relationship between the people and the Tsar because in Russia, especially the Tsars, they had almost like a mythical religious relationship with the people. So it was believed that the Tsar was basically God's representative on earth and that the Tsar was their father you know, the Tsar was going to take care of them. And after Bloody Sunday, when they were shooting innocent peasants who weren't causing any trouble, who just wanted to see their Tsar, hope that if I asked for this, because there was this belief in peasants that if I just go to the Tsar and tell him all our problems, he'll fix them. Very naive, but, you know, it was still quite, you know, there was that sort of relationship. And that sort of relationship is what sustained the Roman of monarchy until the early 1900s when they realised that actually the Tsar's a bit of a prick. So that was Bloody Sunday. So off the back of Bloody Sunday, the reprisals were swift. So the Tsar's uncle, the Grand Duke Sergei, was again blown to bits by revolutionaries. He was assassinated. And there was a lot of unrest, lots of strikes. So Nicholas begrudgingly signs the October Manifesto, which technically turned Russia from an autocracy into a constitutional monarchy where the Duma, which is basically the Russian equivalent of a parliament, they would be responsible for running the country. But Nicholas wasn't going to give up his autocracy that easily. And this is scroat strike number four, in that they set up the Duma, but they rigged the election so that basically peasants or people who basically the Tsar didn't want to hear from wouldn't get elected.
0: Wait, that's totally never happened since or before then yeah basically and that's a totally new thing i've never heard of before people rig elections yep and suppress people that they don't want to have political power oh my god i've never heard of that either they do things so that they can't vote in a fair election
1: yeah, and you know, I've I've also never heard of a government doing a bait and switch as well, saying yeah, the people have a voice, and said people not having a voice either. Totally novel. Wow,
0: that's just that's just like completely blowing my mind right now. Completely foreign concepts.
1: Those, yeah. So, and then he got into the habit of basically, if the Duma said something that he didn't like, he would just dissolve the Duma and basically start again. So, do the do the Thanos snap? <laughs> And literally in his diaries, he talks about doing like, he says it in Russian, but he talks about doing basically like a Thanos snap whenever they displease him, which is obviously that's not a constitutional monarchy. Like you're supposed to listen, but he was adamant. And this was a massive thing that I have about Nicholas is that he would have made a fantastic constitutional monarch because he had the personality. He seemed to genuinely, well, he seemed to like being Russian, like patriotic but and if he just actually realized that actually i'm not cut out for this day-to-day ruling shit because i'm actually making the country worse and gone to a constitutional monarchy i have no doubt of my mind that russia would still be a monarchy to this day but he was adamant that he was just obsessed with preserving the autocracy and not only that passing it down to his son alexei who bearing in mind they knew that he probably was not going to live until he was 20. And this is, you know, when we say that misogyny doesn't make any sense, this is what we mean. Because it just doesn't make any sense why you wouldn't, you know, look to your daughters to preserve your lineage, to preserve the autocracy if you wanted to keep it that way, and to preserve the Roman family. And instead you invest all your hopes into a very, very sick and disabled boy who was probably going to be dead within 10 years. It's just mind boggling. Just the male incompetence. So uh, Nicholas somehow manages to stumble his way through the early 1910s, convening and dissolving the Duma at will, basically. And then we get to the First World War, which Russia decided to enter on the side of France and Britain. And Russia was doing badly to okay, okay to badly, like up until about nineteen fifteen until Nicholas has the wonderful idea of deciding to take control of the Russian army in terms of like becoming commander of the Russian army, despite having absolutely zero experience. Bearing in mind that he wasn't actually doing the day-to-day logistics of the war, but in terms of the image, it was portrayed that he was now taking command of the army, which was a very, very big mistake because now he was being directly blamed for the losses. And also because the army HQ for Russia was out of the capital, so out of St. Petersburg, he wasn't actually ruling the country. And in any war, it places immense strain. So he just wanted to take credit for it,
0: but wasn't actually doing anything. Also a thing that men don't do. I've never heard of a man doing that.
1: Yeah, Well, yeah, basically. It's like a brand new thing. It's a brand new thing. Yeah. Uh, Actually, the more I talk about this out loud, the more like the scrotometer is just, just going off.
0: Yeah. I don't even think it's even close to him not being a scrot. Just everything about this sounds like a series of unfortunate scrot decisions based
1: on his ego. Exactly. And even the first world war, Russia was not prepared for a war at all. Like it just wasn't prepared for it. And they were going up against the German empire that were a lot more prepared. Bearing in mind, like most of Russia at this time, a lot of the army conscripts were peasants who had never seen something like a plane before. So there was a story like when they first saw a German plane, they literally thought that like God was on the side of the Germans and they all deserted because they'd never seen one before. Just stuff like that. So he signs Russia up. (laughs) Way to prepare your people
0: for the reality of war. (laughs) Just just absolute stellar decision-making
1: all around. Exactly. And this wasn't just Russia, though. Everybody thought that the First World War would last a couple of months. Nobody in Europe or America thought it would last as long as it did and be as catastrophic as it was as well. So Nicholas takes command of the army. He's away at the front for very, very long periods of time and then that leaves his wife basically running the country. Now, I think his wife, the Tsarina Alexandra, gets a bad edit in history. I always say the buck stops with the autocrat or the leader or the prime minister, so any decisions that she made, Nicholas has to take responsibility for that because he was ultimately the autocrat, not her. But In the Tsar's absence, she basically, you know, she basically appointed and fired ministers based on whether she liked them or not, which, especially during a time of war, that's not the best strategy because you need continuity and you need competence when you're running a country that is at war. So that further exacerbated the issue. And then Alexei's health, his haemophilia, he wasn't responding to treatment from doctors. The only person who seemed to be able to cure his attacks and to calm him down. It's not known how this, he did this was a peasant called Rasputin, like a literal peasant, as in like from like a backwater. And because the Russian people didn't know about Alexei's illness for the longest time, they couldn't understand why this peasant was just following the Tsar and Tsarina around all the time. They just found it strange. But the reason why they, especially Nicholas, tolerated this peasant was because he seemed to be the only one who could calm Alexi down and put him on the path to healing if he had a nasty attack. Peasant. We still
0: tolerate this peasant. Yeah, they tolerate the peasant. Because he stops his son from having a conniption fit?
1: Yeah, basically. And I know this sounds harsh, but again, I now I think about it, I just can't think of the logic like I keep thinking of his daughters like you had you know four beautiful well-known attractive daughters intelligent why would you not pick one of them over you know your son and especially because Alexei's health put a lot of strain on his parents as it naturally would to keep it a secret and then hoping that he wouldn't die and then it just placed an immense strain and obviously it allowed Actors like Rasputin to come and take center stage. So Rasputin went from almost being a healer of Alexei to actually having a say in running the government. So what the Tsarina would do is that she would remove ministers who didn't like Rasputin as well, even if they were very competent. And again, because, you know, their letters during the war were published, you can see Alexandra writing quite extensively. They used to write to each other several times a day saying basically fire this person fire that person you need to appoint this person and nicola signed off on it so again i feel like due to misogyny alexandra gets a bad edit i'm not saying she made the right decisions but ultimately the autocrat like the buck stops with them so yeah the war was going awfully for russia and again you know every leader has the opportunity to withdraw their troops. They can withdraw their troops in battle, and Nicholas refused to do that because I think it was showboating to like France and Britain saying, "Yeah, we're in this together." Because I mean, European royalty was such that the King of England at the time, George the Queen Elizabeth II's grandfather, was actually the Tsar's first cousin. So, like, they were related. Like, their mothers were sisters. And if you look at pictures of them, you see they actually look like they could be siblings. They look very, very similar, which is strange. A scandal. <laughs> but yeah, part of the reason why Russia stayed in the war way longer than they should have done was because Nicholas refused to retreat. And so the war was going awfully. They eventually conspired to get rid of Rasputin. They murdered him at the end of 1916. But by then it was basically too little, too late so Nicholas was forced to abdicate. This is where you see the cracks of male solidarity, right? So the same countries that Nicholas entered the war to support, so France and Britain, when it came time for the Romanovs to be exiled, so after Nicholas was deposed, he abdicated in favour of himself and also Alexei as well, because they literally said Alexei's not going to live for very long and if you abdicate and pass the throne to him, you'll be sent into exile and he'll stay in Russia, basically. And Nicholas didn't want to do that. So the provisional government were looking for where they could send the Romanovs to, basically out of Russia into exile, because that was the common thing with the post-monarchs. They would just be sent into exile. And so the same countries that Nicholas actually basically destroyed his own country for, Britain and France... They refused to take them in as exiles, basically. They just said no. And I think to this day, there's some, amongst like Russian monarchists, there's some lasting resentment towards Britain because Britain refused to help the Romanovs and give them exile. Which I thought that's a bit of a sc- scroty move on behalf of Britain and France, to be fair. But that just shows the, the example But that's a good example of cracks in male solidarity.
0: All's fair and scroton war. <laughs>
1: Yeah, basically, they just said, and the Romanos basically became a hot potato, like no country wanted them. And it was really sad, actually, because they were very vulnerable. Nicholas was deposed. The whole country hated them. And it wasn't really clear, you know, where they would go next. But they were eventually sent into internal exile to Siberia, first to to Tobolsk, and then Yekaterinburg. And then they were finally murdered by the bolsheviks in july 1918. Ugh, finally. Bro. Enter the story, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) And so, and it wasn't just Nicholas and his immediate family who were murdered, so Nicholas, Alexandra, their four daughters and the son, along with several members of their household. The bolsheviks literally rounded up any Romanov they could get their hands on and shot them as well. So I think in total, about 17 uh, Romanovs were killed and even people associated with them. So some of their staff, like they were killed as well, which was really, really sad and very, very brutal. And, you know, whilst nobody deserves to be murdered, I think in the case of Nicholas II, you can't say that he didn't have it coming, if that makes sense. That's not to say that he deserved it, but it was just... If you map his reign, it's just one series. It's just one bad decision after another. You know, right from the time when you refuse to change the line of succession. So, I am not saying that they should have changed the line of succession and left Alexei to die, but that would have taken a lot of pressure off Alexandra and Nicholas in terms of trying to find out how to keep him alive. If that makes sense, if they had a healthy successor in one of their daughters as well. But I will say, like. It's tough because as a leader, Nicholas II was a scrote, absolute scrote, like 100%. It's just not even debatable. And because of his actions, Russia was then condemned to several years of communism and Stalinism. And they're still feeling the effects of that czarist regime, to even to this day, in the form of Putin, I think. But privately, he actually seemed like he was quite, dare I say, at high value. So... He married a woman that he genuinely loved, which was quite rare in royal circles at the time where they married like just for politics. And Nicholas refused to do that. He insisted on marrying Alexandra. That just feels selfish <laughs> to me. True. I see what you mean. Cause Alexandra wasn't suited to be empress at all. Like even from day one, like to be a Russian empress, you had to be outgoing you know, willing to mingle with the people, willing to show your face. And she just wasn't willing to do any of that. Again, she would have made a great constitutional monarch. But yeah, he married a woman that he loved and, you know, their relationship as a couple, not as Zara and Zarina, it seemed very high value. So if you read their love letters to each other, they're very, very romantic. And you can tell like they had deep, deep love for each other, which was rare, again, in royal circles, where people just married whoever was suitable usually. And then with his daughters, even though he was really scroty in terms of not making them his successor, again, he was quite ahead of his time in that he seemed like he was genuinely a good dad. Like lots of royal parents are very, very shit parents. I think Harry talks about it in Spare. Charles talks about it with the Queen. They're just not very good parents. They're either absent parents or just downright abusive parents but it seems like Nicholas had a lot of time for his kids despite running the country. And he was ahead of his time in the sense that he wanted his daughters to marry men that they genuinely loved as opposed to marrying them off for political purposes or political alliances, because he turned down several proposals for his daughter's hand in marriage. Again, well, not several, like loads, because his daughters were like the most eligible princesses in the world at the time. But he was adamant that they should marry, you know, somebody that they genuinely loved, which was, again, wasn't really a thing in royal circles at the time. So I feel like privately he seems like mid value, but on broader assessment, I even think it has to be negative value because like this is not even low value. Like a low value man just makes your life shit, but a negative value man leaves you worse off than when you started. So. In the case of Alexandra, you came in as a princess and you leave, like, with absolutely no title and you end up dead. Like, that is a negative value, man. Has to be negative value. Like, there's not really anything worse than being dead because of a man's decisions.
0: (laughs) So I feel like if your relationship ends in bodies, it's pretty clear that it wasn't worth it.
1: Yeah, that just has to be, like, negative. And it's not even, like, his own body. Like, it was the bodies of many millions of people indirectly because of the russian civil war and then communism and then his own immediate family like that just has to be that's just pure negative value behavior i'm sorry this is like borderline blasphemy as well because like nicholas and alexandra were actually canonized in the russian orthodox church as saints but why <laughs> why to be fair it was controversial because people did say like well yeah he died and it was sad but <laughs> it's his own fault <laughs> basically. But yeah, he was canonized as a saint, as a passion bearer in the Russian Orthodox Church. But I still believe, and yeah, I just feel like lots of the world landscape would look very, very different had Nicholas II just not been Tsar at that time. And it just goes to show like male, it's not male assumptions, but it's just male confidence in things that just haven't come to pass yet. It's just what I don't understand. And this is something that's a recurring theme that we see in royal households, especially is that they just assume that they're going to live for a while. And then that's just not the case. I guess if everyone
0: says you're literally God's mouthpiece, you might think you're omnipotent and invincible. You know
1: what I mean? Yeah, but I just feel like if they took the position of Tsar seriously, like from the time he was about 12, 13, I'd be drilling him on, like, how to run a country. He'd be sitting in on meetings with ministers. He wouldn't be, you know, frolicking with prostitutes, having mistresses, getting drunk, going to the opera, doing fuck all all day. Like, I just feel like I also blame his parents, quite frankly, because they should have, you know, prepared him more, especially if you're going to be an autocrat where, you know, you're actually going to be doing the running of the country. I think even constitutional monarchs now, they get prepped because there's still stuff they have to do. But, if you're an autocrat and everything starts and stops with you, you can't just assume that they'll just get it. Especially, like, I'm not really sure what Alexander III was thinking because, you know, when we talk about male scrotery, we always say, like, if they get to a certain age, especially, like, you know, and they're still a man and a lost cause, they're likely going to remain that way. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's frustrating. Like, it's really frustrating with the Romanovs because unlike some series of events like you can sort of see how it was inevitable but this was entirely scrote design this was entirely scrote like scrote led in terms of the family's downfall and that could have been avoided so yeah i think that's my like personally privately i think that you know nicholas was probably mid to high value but overall rating it just has to be negative value nvm And that's not even including all the like other like heinous political shit that he did. So he had the Jewish pogroms where they targeted Jewish people. Like
0: Yeah, there's nothing about this guy that makes me feel like he was kind of nice to his wife. He let his daughters not be treated like complete cattle. I mean, that's cool, I guess.
1: (laughs) I mean, I'm putting it into historical context because in royal circles or general circles, that was the norm. But yeah, it doesn't erase all like his just Piss poor governance of a country that really, really needed a strong, empathetic, and a leader that was just able to read the room for a bit as well. So that was my whistle stop tour of the Romanovs. Yeah. And that's our overall rating. FDS rating of Tsar Nicholas II is negative value mail.
0: Sounding kind of to me. Wah, wah, wah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's our show. Check us out on Twitter at femdatstrat and on Patreon with our weekly bonus content as well as our Discord. And you can submit a queen shit, a roast to scrote, or anything else, topic you want us to discuss, patreon.com forward slash female dating strategy. Follow us on Instagram at underscore the female dating strategy. Thanks for listening, queens, and for all these scrotes out there.
1: The revolution is coming for you too. Die mad.
0: Die mad. See y'all next week.